Welcome to The Art of Change, in-depth interviews with artists from the University of California, Santa Cruz, who believe in the transformative power of art making and who are committed to proactive social engagement. There's a kind of pessimism that can arise from being surrounded by some of these artworks and some of these themes. But there's a kind of optimism you have to hold on to, too, and that all the works, I think, are this interesting mix between what Gramsci supposedly said was the pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, so that, you know, we can understand that the world is this place in which all these bad things are happening, and yet we have to continue to believe something different. I'm Lyle Troxell, and this is The Art of Change. Rachel Nelson is director of UC Santa Cruz's Institute of Arts and Sciences. How do you pronounce that initials? A-I-S? IAS. IAS. Okay, good. IAS. All right. She also teaches in the History of Art and Visual Culture Department at UC Santa Cruz. Nelson oversees IAS staff and conceives and implements the Visual Arts Center's ambitious exhibition and event programs and the Graduate and Undergraduate Fellowship Curatorial and Arts Education Programs. She is currently curating a major group exhibition about art, prisons, and justice, barring freedom, which will be on view in New York's John Jay College of Criminal Justice before traveling to UC Santa Cruz and San Jose Museum of Art. She's also coordinating a symposium and related book to accompany that exhibition called Visualizing Prison Abolition. Your book is not called that though, right? No, this is a kind of second project. A solo exhibition of artworks by Carlos Mota called We the Enemy and related symposium Bodies at the Borders at UC Santa Cruz and SF MoMA. Nelson publishes widely on contemporary art and politics, including in third text, Inca, Journal of Contemporary African Art and African Arts. Nelson has a PhD in visual studies from UC Santa Cruz. Rachel, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thanks for driving way up to Boulder Creek to my home. I really appreciate that. It was a lovely drive. Oh, good. Good. So I thought we would talk ab- about your your thesis a bit, and specifically chapter three of your thesis, which really leads into this show that you're working on now, that you're curating now. So um, in your, your thesis, the, the chapter three, Between Sight and Insight, um, is the, the chapter theme. Can you kind of describe what you talk about in this chapter? On this, I mean, I think that to step back apart, that that is from a uh, book project that I'm currently working in called um, At the Edge of Ruin that looks at contemporary art practices as they're entwined with globalization. So contemporary art comes about as a global practice. You know, contemporary art is different from modern art and things that come before because suddenly we are seeing art practices come up all over the world that are being shown together in exhibitions. Okay. So I look at contemporary art practices for what they reveal about the processes of globalization in particular, what they reveal about why it's become so ruinous. I mean, we're in a time, a political time that where crises is widespread and environmental crises, political crises, you know, social uprisings. So looking at contemporary art practices for what they reveal about that. One of the things that I think was the obvious thing to do with that was to look elsewhere in the world. But I was really interested in thinking about what contemporary art practices in the United States reveal also about how these systems, kind of global systems travel, and particularly became interested in art um, that was looking at the prison industrial complex. I mean, Do you pri- think of the prison industrial complex as an international uh, uh, issue or a uh, national issue? So, I mean, I think it's both, right? That it begins as a national production. The United States kind of invents the prison industrial complex to some degree, right? That it takes, rises from systems, you know, there's a, well, there's a long history, right? Of how it comes out of uh, systems of enslavement, 
travels through kind of the economies after that, through Jim Crow and into the normal and into where we are now. But it also is a system that's been exported. Right. So that we um, that becomes a kind of a U.S. commodity system. What how does it how does it export? How does it become international? I mean, I think that you can see that actually that it becomes a model. If you look at the UK, it becomes a model. Uh, even kind of stop and frisk laws in the United States are then taught to pres- um, to police officers in other countries who are then used it. So that there's a seed that's planted in prisons in the United States that then grow other places, right? Mm. And all over the world. I mean, we have the largest prison population in the world, but our police officers also train police forces in other places. Interesting. So we're really exporting our expertise if you will, of prison industrial system. Why do you call it an, um, like, why do you call it an um, industrial complex kind of system? What, what, what kind of level of complexity and what kind of level of systematics do we have around prisons? So, I mean, the prison industrial complex is, so it's bigger than just prisons, right? That we, people want to talk about prisons and mass incarceration in the United States, but the prison industrial complex, that phrase indicates its relationship to the bigger systems that support it. So from the court systems to the police, you know, stops to um, like the ticketing of pedestrians, that all of that to detention centers in, in immigration policies, that industrial complex is a way to signal those greater forces through which the um, prison system runs, right? So um, I could talk also about the criminal justice system. Right. But do you, do you separate that out or do you think of that as part of the prison industrial complex? It is oh, very it is. much okay. so. And I'm like, I, when we th- know, think about the criminal justice system, we realize we're talking about lawyers, judges, right. we're talking about all of these things, but actually, um, and we're talking about prisons. So we're talking about one thing. And I think that the prison industrial um, complex is a way to say that and to be expansive about what it is. I okay. mean, I think people understand the military industrial complex. Right. It's a good model in some sense. Yes. Yeah. And of course, we're using terms that actually... In many ways, UC Santa Cruz grew. I mean, you know, we're kind of wide ranging here, but of course, the the, the language around prisons and the um, struggles around prisons has a long history at UC Santa Cruz that our professors, researchers, activists, and students at this university have um, invested a lot of time into creating a discourse and language around prisons so that people can see it as more than just a problem of mass incarceration, more than a problem of people sitting in cells, but a problem that affects or reaches out into all aspects, I think, of the, of society. Okay. So professors like Angela Davis, Gina Dent, Anjali Verma, Craig Haney, there's all these people on campus who've really worked at really making something like the prison industrial complex, a language that now people understand. Yeah. And not just in the art context, because you just listed people from multiple disciplines. Oh, yes. Engaged in this conversation. I mean, in the art context, we have Sharon Daniel, we have D. D. Hibbert Jones. I mean, there's a huge faculty on campus that really looks at prisons. Yeah. So I've gone really far away from your question. That's great. So that, but so as I said, that I'm working on this project, really thinking about the kind of the ruins of globalization and how something like prisons in the United States becomes part of a larger system, mm-hmm. right? That is so that the kind of social problems that we have in this country begin to move out to other places. And similarly, I look at, say, you know, the, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and mining and think about that as a system, right? So I'm looking at all of these kind of global systems next to each other. So your thesis does incorporate other examples, and it just happens to be that because your current piece is also about the industrial uh, 
prison industrial complex that this chapter of your thesis is kind of applicable to. And that's you handed it to me as a read. And so if I was like, well, this seems totally what you're doing right now. But the but the thesis is actually broader. The book is actually broader to that with regards to multiple areas that affects the world. Exactly. Uh, world. Okay. Exactly. And so I wanted to, but then when I got to the, this chapter into the United States, I really honed in on this one aspect of this kind of societal ill, right, that we are surrounded by, particularly looking at the, um, the, the, um, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm like the um, photographic practice of Shander McCormick and Keith Calhoun, who are photographers who live in New Orleans, who have for the last 30 years taken images inside the Louisiana State Penitentiary, which is called Angola. So the reason why it's called Angola, because we were like, why is there a prison in Louisiana that is called the name of a country in West Africa, is because, in fact, the, um, the prison was a former plantation that um, fields that were worked by people who were enslaved, the majority of whom were from Angola. So oh. that the, yes, so that the prison retains the name of the plantation and in fact is still a fully working farm in which now instead of people who are enslaved working the fields, prisoners work the fields for something like four to 20 cents an hour and um, grow the same crops that were that were part of the that plantation economy. It's a, you know, and this is something that actually most people know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, right. I, I know. I've heard this whole yes. story before, but it's it's still just kind of shocking that it's such a lineage that's so clearly black and white, like what's exactly the same thing. And the other aspect of that is that regardless of the insignificance of that fund, the money, that money is completely going back into the system, right? Because everything they buy, everything that they're doing is still there. They can't leave. I mean, that's, yeah, it's in... It's an enslavement by any other name. I mean, it really is. So you, you focus on the photographers, these, these two photographers that are in that area. How do they have access to take these wonderful photos? Your, your thesis starts with this, this amazing photograph um, about, of two men playing chess through the bars. And the way you wrote about it is, is really lovely, too. I, I'd almost want to read the entire thing to people. I've been enjoying your writing. Um, but you kind of talk about how the two people are totally obscured by the bars that lock them in, the, this trapped moment of somebody else in the, in the piece. It's a very powerful image. How do they get access to be in the prison to do that? Well, interestingly enough, that Angola is the most widely photographed prison in the United States. This is what I was saying about the fact that Angola, I mean, the weird thing about Angola is here we have a prison that was a plantation named Angola, you know, that continues to be a working plantation that um, 85% of the population in Angola is African-American, even though only 30% of the population of Louisiana is um, is African-American. So here we, yes. So we have this snapshot, right, of this really how history has worked in the United States from the time of enslavement. And it's not a secret. And it's not a secret. It's widely photographed. I mean, if you look up Angola, uh, Angola prison on, you know, if you Google it, you're going to find a whole bunch of really amazing um, photographs. Now, that said, Shonda McCormick and Keith Calhoun had permissions in different points in time, have petitioned for permissions to come in and photograph Um, when their work began to be um, get a whole lot of attention. after, well, they were in the 2015 Venice Biennale, which is one of the biggest um, exhibitions of contemporary art in the world. And after that, they've no, they no longer have permission to go into Angola and shoot. Um, your your phrasing of your thesis, of course, is about you looking at this piece in a very in a in a a very important contemporary art location. You're looking at this piece about from Louisiana. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that I was really interested in is here is this is not a secret, right? This is everything about Angola frames the problem of the prisons in the United States in very clear terms. We see the history, we see the present, we see the connections between economics, between race, it doesn't all take of these a grad things. student to process this. No. Right. And yet somehow we ignore it completely as a society that somehow we condone it even, right? By allowing it to happen, that nobody's um, protesting Angola. Right. That there's something about it that we both see and do not see at the same time. So what I was interested in was actually seeing these photographs that I was really familiar with when I saw them at the Venice Biennale, surrounded by all of these contemporary art projects, you know, in this kind of um, really different environment um, from, I think, that reality thinking about what it means when we look at these, when these images move into different spaces. What does it mean when we approach prisons and the ideas of, of justice in the United States within contemporary art? What shifts for us? How do artists try to make us see and experience things that perhaps we're seeing and experiencing in all these different forms, whether it be news, you know, all, you know television. What, what the framing of art does to that? Yes. Well, what does it do to it? Well, I think that it asks a, to asks a kind of different experiential uh, asks, or suggests a different experiential approach, right? That we have all these things that we're surrounded by. You know, we're reading newspaper articles, we're seeing television shows, we're doing all these things. And then art just tries to come in kind of from a different angle. I always think that here we are, we're being asked to slow down. Mm -hmm. You're being asked to pay attention to what you see, right? right. That our, our art, we, every time we look at art, we always think that we're supposed to be understanding something, <laughs> whether or not that is in <laughs> fact true or who's supposed to be understanding what, but there's a kind of request that's being made for art. So I became more and more interested, not only in how Chandra McCormick and Keith Calhoun we're interested in using these forms to um, make requests of people to pay attention to these histories in different ways, in ways that we've chosen as a society to largely overlook, but the ways in which other artists do as well. Mm -hmm. um, have you met these two artists? I have. And what are they like as people? Do they feel that their work is like seminal and important? Do they feel, do they, do they protest? I mean, are they, how are they thinking about how their work impacts? Well, I mean, I think that um, Chandra and Keith are amazing. Are they, are they partners in artwork? They are partners. Okay. So they're, um, they are, you know, old time uh, Louisiana, New Orleans residents. They um, work in the ninth ward of, Louis, of uh, New Orleans, which, you know, is a historically black neighborhood. Um, poor for the most part, but people that own their homes. It's that weird mix in the United States of uh, one of those weird pockets that's left where people do still do own homes, even though that they're impoverished. Yeah. And these kind of vital and crime ridden and neighborhood in New Orleans and that they have started, they have a community center there where they teach photography to youth. They're in many ways, they're on the front lines of a kind of day to day activism uh -huh. that they their whole life is activism, right? From the time they wake up in the morning to the time they go to bed. And the, the projects of um, their photographic projects are one arm of that. Right. right. And they their photographs are, have been shown in newspapers and The New Yorker. I mean, they're really they're like documentary photographers in many ways. Yeah. Right. Which is not normally what I write about. But they also dip in and out of these like really prestigious art um, venues and art uh, exhibitions, which is incredibly interesting as well. But I think that they're not super interested. I mean, I always think that um, 
it's funny. I'm Chandra and Keith. I deal with a lot of artists and they're the ones that I get like a little nervous around because they're such elders and the kind of responsibility I feel of showing their work and talking about their work because of their kind of deep commitments. They're not super interested in a lot of things that go around with art, like the prestige and the kind of fanciness of art. Instead, they're really looking for the place where they can take down prisons and they can take down oppression in the United States. They're really just looking at every angle they can possibly find to finding the whole Know that they it's can kinda, stay in you know? pretty pretty darn noble and yeah sense. they're they're amazing yeah well, um let's talk about the context of putting it in a gallery you mentioned the idea that like, there's a different way you ask and engage in, in being in a museum slash gallery kind of context um one of the things that comes to mind anytime faculty and artists talk about the gallery space is that it's such a selection or such a it feels like a, such a small subset of the population that goes to galleries that even has the uh, the desire but even has the privilege to spend an afternoon walking through a nice space it seems exclusionary on its face and i would say i mean absolutely right that it totally has been set up as places that um, hone a certain kind of classed sensibility. But at the same time, remember that everybody goes to museums. School kids go to museums. You know, if you think about MoMA in New York, which gets, you know, millions and millions of visitors every year, if you go to New York, you're going to go to MoMA. So there's a way in which now museums are both these elite institutions that um, are filled with uh, privilege and class. And then there are also these weird weird tourist stops that everybody herds through to go and see things. So they And uh, to be asked to think differently than normally do. Yes. Yeah, okay. So that pairs that pair together of this is a different space and therefore you could maybe think differently is an interesting thing to place to to approach people with new ideas. I mean, it's just that they're, it's weird. <laughs> it's totally weird. Yeah. Museums are weird because they ask us to to go into them as if they're um, sacred spaces. Right. Spaces of contemplation. And yet, actually, almost every, you know, many, many people in the United States do go to museums. Even though they're not. So, okay, that's good that that a lot of people go. We're asked to be sacred. Do you think it's a sacred sort of thing? I mean, I think that historically, I mean, now I don't think when you go to MoMA, you know, and everybody's there. No, everybody's there taking selfies and all of that stuff. I think (laughs) that we've um, we've are well dismantling the idea of museums as a sacred place. But they still do retain some of that, I think, um, some of that request, right, yeah. of taking time and thinking. And there is that weird, I mean, I think it's something about the way knowledge works, right, that you're supposed to to go there thinking, uh, you know, as a place where you're going to think and learn or yeah. you're supposed to know something or, you know, everybody's reading the wall text. That and even if something. you see an amazing docu- documentary on Netflix or something about the same type of topic place that might be touching, what you're asked to be there is like in your home. You're not, nothing's asked of you, right? It's being, it's being shown to you and you can be whoever you want to be. You're not thought to think differently necessarily. The piece will maybe do that to you. A good, a good film may do that to you. But in that other context, you're, you're changing your body location. You're thinking about your, your environment and space. And so, in, and you have this large weirdness factor of what a museum actually means. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there's some, you know, they say that you have to encounter like an idea three times before you kind of understand it, right? You yeah. have to experience it in three different ways. And I think that art is one of those ways that we experience things yeah. so that it becomes this kind of important node in yeah. a larger way we understand the world. Why? Okay. We're going to shift gears a little bit mm-hmm. here to your job. 
<laughs> why, or one of your aspects of your job, why does UC Santa Cruz need a museum? Oh my gosh. Here's a softball <laughs> That <for> is <laughs> a great question. So I have to say that, I mean... This is, let's just say that out of all the UCs, the only one that does not have a significant, the only ones that don't have significant galleries or museums are Santa Cruz and Merced. It's not just me that thinks that there's something about art that livens education, right? Sure. That this is something that um, we understand that universities are places of learning and knowing and teaching and research, and that museums are have a role to play in that, and the visual arts have a role to play in that. If, like I just said, that there's this, um, you know, that all ideas really there's this whole idea that there's a whole theory that you have to approach them three times, mm -hmm. right? Or there are three different ways in. So if you watch a documentary, if you listen to music, if you see, you know, see if, some news, right. hear somebody talk to you. Yeah. Yes. That you um, understand it. And so that the, there's been a long standing idea in universities that of course art has a role to play in teaching in learning in experience, like the kind of experiential understandings we have of the world that it has been valued for some reason at UC Santa Cruz, this hasn't really been the case. We have a very small gallery on campus. With Mary Porter says on gallery, right? A really wonderful gallery. A fantastic gallery who's done a fantastic job with 850 square feet that is not climate controlled, so you can't borrow artworks from other museums oh, interesting. or collecting yeah. institutions. I mean, this is the space. I am very familiar with Porter College, is where mm -hmm. it's housed. It is just another one of the conference type spaces that existed and. Mary Porter says not. Uh, Mary uh, Porter says not actually gave funds, and and that space got created. It wasn't built for a museum space. It is a conference room addition, right? The, it's a great space. I'm not. I don't want to dis diminish what it is. I think it's doing a fantastic job. But it is one of those things that it's not designed to be that way. It's squeezed in. Yes, I mean, and it's. I mean, it's upstairs. There's not nobody is going to wander by the Cezanne and then go in. You have to know that it's there and know that there's a show, and so and it's unable to serve. The, the student body, it, it acts as a classroom. It yeah. does because yeah. we bring in 30 students at a time. We teach um, teach exhibitions, it's things like that. It's being used as its purpose, right? It's, it's being really used great. that Blackboard, way. Yeah. But it is a, it's a hard, it's a hard space to do that in, right? We cannot launch major shows. In fact, um, the exhibition that I'm doing that's related to the chapter that we were just talking about, Barring Freedom, is going to be shown there. But at the same time, it'll be shown at San Jose Museum of Art because it's a, it's a big show. Like, right. you know, what I can show on on um, campus as a tiny percentage of the artworks that we're showing, for instance, in New York. I'm assuming that you're not duplicating that artwork. So be, you, if you, to see the entire show, you'll have to go to both venues. Yeah, that's right. OK, so what, you, what you're choosing to show at Cezanne, how are you deciding to make that? Well, you know, let's go into that in a minute. First, I mm -hmm. want to talk more about the Institute. So the Institute of Art and Sciences, why is sciences attached to this? And, and one of its goals is to actually have a gallery slash museum space mm -hmm. uh, associated with the university. That's what, why it got created, right? So how, why is science associated? Why, what's happening there? But the, it's, the in, it's interdisciplinary by nature. I mean, one of the things that you'll find is when we talk about exhibitions, that they're already dealing with things that aren't necessarily what you'd think of as art, right? So if we're talking about art and, the, and prisons, right? Like that obviously we're already talking about something that is interdisciplinary disciplinary right. in nature. It's economic, it's business, it's religious, it's, it's legal studies. Legal, it's, yeah. you know, there's all of these different things that are being pulled into it. As you mentioned, all the people that have kind of research at UCS, the faculty of research, they're across the disciplines. Across the disciplines. Mm -hmm. So when the Institute was begun on this campus, really, and the Institute was begun in order to expand the presence of visual arts on campus, but in a way that ref 
reflects the needs, I think, of university campuses in the 21st century, which is not thinking about this as merely or simply, maybe we shouldn't reduce it, as simply an art space, but as something that actually will serve as a node for people across disciplines in the um, in the university. To share and explore ideas in a public forum space. Exactly. And research that's being done on the university in different fields, around environment, around uh, social justice issues, all of these things can find this would be a center in which those ideas could be, um, there could be exhibitions, there could be symposium, there could be events that would bring that both to the public and also um, the, the broad public, and then, but also to the large, the public of the university. So the community of the university could kind of, we could come together around our, some of our shared concerns. Okay. So the, again, prisons is one example of that, because then um, the reason why we're doing it is because there's people all across the university that are researching it, including there's the Global Health Initiative, which we're working with um, the Dean of Physical and Biological Sciences and the Dean of the Social Sciences. All for barring freedom. Yes. Thinking about mental health. But I mean, there's a, but that's just one example of this as an interdisciplinary hub. I think that, um, you know, we have another exhibition planned or another kind of exhibition program around climate change that can, you know, that we're thinking about this as something that is interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary, that um, arts are part of a larger conversation, of larger conversations that are right. being had on campus. Yeah, we're definitely right now talking about the piece of barring freedom and some of your research about mm -hmm. the prison industrial system. But you can take the same model for climate change. You can take the same idea for um, gender equality and, and rights. And there's lots of ways you can think about these kind of issues. Um, it's everything we think about, if you will, is applicable right. in that same kind of context. So the Institute of the Arts and Sciences was started to really begin to think about what arts programming on a kind of on a larger scale than the small gallery could be on campus. What are the roles that it could serve? How could it bring faculty together? How could it enliven education? How could it be a greater um give greater access to the broader public to what was happening on the campus. Did and you know, I want to talk to about the broader public because I um for for 11 years or so was at UC Santa Cruz all the time as a staff member. And my uh, grandmother, who was a faculty at San Jose State in art history, when shows were at the Cessnon, we'd go together because I had a parking permit. It's very hard to get around campus and visit campus. So that was a regular thing we'd do when a new show came up, she'd come up to the Cessnon. And it feels like that was one member being ushered from from the broader Santa Cruz community because someone worked on campus could do it. That feels like the kind of a barrier that occurs. And I just the other day was researching one of the interviewees and I wanted to look at some work at the library. So I go to McHenry and it's just what an amazing space. What an incredible resource for the campus, of course, a, a library is essential, um, but not a resource in their connection at all to Santa Cruz. Like nobody in Santa Cruz goes up there unless they work or are learning there. And it feels like there's this giant barrier geographically of the campus. How important is it to bring that to a broader Santa Cruz or a better Silicon Valley environment? I mean, I think that the truth of the matter is we are in part of this community. Yeah. It's not, I mean, we always talk about the, um, as if somehow the university and the community are separate, but they're not. We live in the community. Our students live in the community. We are part of the community. We you know, vote in Santa yeah. Cruz. So I think that the real trick is to realize that we are a community that exceeds the campus, that is part of the town and is part of the greater, um, you know, Central California, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And that um, that we need to be accessible to it and play the role of good neighbors and to participate and 
um, facilitate participation. But that's not a mission of the campus, is it? I mean, the campus is to educate and to make a research environment. Like that's that doesn't. It's hard to say that campus funds should be extended to open itself up to the community. Is that a hard argument to make? Well, I don't think I don't think really. I mean, I think that the thing is, is an educational mission is an educational mission. So who are we including and not including in the educational mission? But I also would say that the institute is 100 percent donor funded. So that our you kind a lot of more freedom yes. to do it. Yes. So yeah. our kind of um, interest in generating public and um, be- making kind of doors in some ways between the campus and the community, or acknowledging that those doors already exist. We do programming in town. We're do you know we do laser talks. For instance, we have one at the Rio Theater. What's a laser they, talk? Laser talks are they're Leonardo Art and Science Evening Rendezvous. Okay. Is what laser stands for, and they bring. Um, Really, we invite faculty from across the campus. So in the arts and the social sciences and the sciences in humanities to come together to do short, like 20 minute talks. They're oh, so they're also quick talk focused yes. talks. Okay. So, and they, we do not give them themes. So we'll have four like vastly different talks that give you a really good look into somebody's research. They're public oriented. So we ask them to be publicly accessible, um, you know, and they're these great kind of access to the university and things that are happening on the university, they're really popular with the public. We do them both on campus and off campus. You do it at the Rio, did you say? We're doing it at the Rio this month. It's a large venue in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that organization and structure of doing that is in the Institute. So yes, it's an um, international Leonardo art and science evening rendezvous are actually an international forum of, of, of interdisciplinary talks that we've done for the last seven years that uh, in order to do this access. But then I would also say that when we do things on campus, we always do them in this building that has a adjacent parking. That's so, important. <laughs> yes. So we are very carefully try to do programming in a way that is accessible to the public. Yeah. But at the same time, I also think that the students and faculty and staff are very much our community too. That yeah. I think that we, all these lines are kind of false lines in some ways that we've created. Mm-hmm. And that anybody who's interested and wants to know about what's happening both on campus and wants to engage in the issues that we're dealing with should have access to our programming. And I would also say that some of the methodologies you get around campus as a student is obvious. You walk, it's a beautiful campus to walk in and Santa Cruz weather is pretty good. And you take buses and there's a bus system that's very functional, it's city bus. Um, but those those methodologies for traveling around Santa Cruz are not as common. Like a lot of people in Santa Cruz drive cars and the campus is not as friendly for car driving. So there is one of those kind of economic shifts between the 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 community the broader community get into campus and the structural you know con this whole conversation about transportation and public transportation that exists as well there um so i i'm not saying the campus is closing means it very much is there so but it's nice to have you know marketed promoted things out saying come to campus and do things with us um, i think that's kind of essential so it's nice and i'm assuming are you is your mission to build the museum on campus or does it matter where it is? I think, no, it, it does matter where it is. So the larger goal is of course, to develop a more substantial gallery space on campus that's able to be a hub of teaching and learning, that's able to facilitate public engagement. I think that actually I feel really strongly that it needs to be on campus because the, what we're talking about is a classroom. Yeah. I mean, museums are classrooms. People come to learn and that we want to, our students to have the access to this 
other kind of classroom space, this kind of experiential learning that comes to the visual arts. So I think that though there has been talk in the past about perhaps putting it in town, I actually worry that our students have less access in some ways to travel than people who live in Santa Cruz mm -hmm. proper, right? That um, often our poorest students, for instance, are the ones that live on campus. Yeah. So how can we really integrate this into the lives of the students? And then I think the nice thing too, is that the public, the community outside the campus is interested in what's happening in our student life, right? So that this is a way of opening up kind of the experience of the campus in different ways. So, I mean, I think that in some ways, if I'm following your range of questions, I would say the educational mission of our camp of, of the campus is our mission. Yeah. One. Okay. I would say that the campus also has a mission of public outreach and making sure that people know what we're doing on campus, because of course that public is also our student body. Mm -hmm. They might be alum, um, alums, their children might be considering where to go to school, all of this. We're all interwoven, right? Yeah. That there's not no separate, we're the state university, yeah. <laughs> we, you know? So this is a, you know, this is all part and parcel, I think of everybody's lives. So we touching kind of on on funding and where money comes from and stuff. One of the reasons I asked about the science aspect of it, I kind of understood the concept like galleries, and museum spaces have always been a mix of these things. This idea of of showcasing work is art and science and technology. Mm -hmm. That's always a kind of connected thing in museums across the world. So that makes sense. I was curious if there is a leaning from a financial incentive to say the sciences are welcome too, because on campus as a staff member for years, I noticed that the money flowed very much more uh, readily to the sciences than to the arts. So I was just wondering if there was a bit of that kind of connection as well. I mean, yes, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I think that there was trying to signal, a, like I said, a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary modality, whether it was also, you know, I'm not the founding director, sure. whether it was also a, really a financial bid. We're talking about four deans ago. So, you, yeah, know, knows, yeah. you know, that that maybe there was a sense of that. I think that, though, even more than that, it really reflected the um, unusual work that was being done on campus that was already interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. It needs a home and a space and a voice. Yeah. Yes. So, for instance, you know, the Harrisons are really important eco artists um, from who've been working since the 60s, thinking about art and climate change. Helen Mayer Harrison, they're a partner, Helen Mayer Harrison and Newton Harrison. Helen Mayer Harrison unfortunately died um, a year ago, but really thinking about how unusual and important their practice was for mm -hmm. Santa Cruz, right? That they actually combined art and science in these equal, in these interesting ways and that their work provides a model for us for thinking about art in interdisciplinary and interesting yeah. ways. Well, I want to move on to funding. So you, the, the Institute mm -hmm. has has a, a long-term goal of actually having a permanent residence, but it's obviously organizing and orchestrating a lot of programs that are around the space, like like Barring Freedom, the piece that you're currently curating and working on launching. How do you, how, how do you go about figuring out how to resource and entice and, you know, just to pay for these shows and to get such impressive artists to be involved? What's the workflow look like for you? Like there's an idea, let's do a show. How does it, how did it start? Well, I would say, as I said, that usually the idea to do a show, uh, we meet, have a faculty group that we meet and talk with and think about kind of research strands that are coming 
to the forefront at the at Santa Cruz. So thinking, for instance, I mean, I think the prisons ones was obvious. We always knew that that was one of the top ones on our list of something to do an exhibition about, both because of the quality of research on the campus and then how many artists are also thinking about this in the United States. So we'll come up with an idea like that. We'll talk to faculty, figure out if other people are interested in doing it, come up with kind of advisory yeah. groups around exhibitions. And then also... So what, you, pull, you pull together some of these people that are interested in this topic that are on campus and said, I'm thinking about we're doing a show like this and there's just enough momentum. Yes. So who was on your advising committee on doing this show? So I would say, so we've been talking about this exhibition for a long time. So okay. Herman so Gray, yes. <laughs> I mean, we've, I've, you know... Craig Haney, Gina Dent, Herma Gray, Angela Davis, um, who else have we talked to on campus? Everyone in the world okay, <laughs> is who okay. we've talked to. I've talked to everybody. I've talked to all the deans. I've talked to bazillion faculty members. We go to faculty. Um, we go to the department meetings. We do all sorts of stuff just to garner research and to get ideas from people. Now, about the funding piece of it, because how do you go from an idea to having the money to do it? When it's a good idea, there's obvious funding line, lines for what? it. Why right? is that? I, because if it's a project that has so much interest on campus, you're going to find that much interest in the community. Okay. Right? So that if you're really drawing from the pools, it's funny. They just start opening up. And because I'm... Maybe five years ago, we couldn't have found ample funding for a show about prisons. But right now, in the way that the country is and the kind of interest that people have, this is actually one of the things that we're all thinking about, yeah. right? That there's what's happened in this country, that we do have the largest rates of incarceration in the world, that our country is incredibly divisive. And what roles is this are prisons and the histories of prisons playing within this? So, you know, so I get that and I look at kind of grants. We I work with different people in the arts division who do that for a living. Okay, so so the so staff in the arts division actually understand where grant funding comes from. They mm -hmm. might know of a grant that like up, is applicable. Right. And then there's arts foundations. So the, the So you're writing grants yourself only, to yes. them. <laughs> so that particularly only fund things in the arts and we look at that. And then I meet with a lot of private donors. So that the um form um alumni from the school, um so you're people that are interested as well in some ways. Well, yes. And we you know, we have a development person, so they help me contact. But the but the institute now, because we've been on campus um, for six or s for seven years, that we have relationships with people. So okay. one of the things I do is I just start conversations and I say, you know, is this a program that you'd be interested in funding? And, and the, we're, we're most successful with private. We've been very successful with private donors. I don't want to talk about. I don't want to call out mm -hmm. donors. Um, and of course, there might be some public donating money as well. But lots of times we don't talk about them directly. Um, but where, what I want to track down where this money is coming from in the sense like these people are, are they Silicon Valley money? Are they software company money? Where's this kind of flow come from? Is yeah. it commercial? Where's it come from? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think that if you look, you'll see that one of our largest donors is the McAvoy Family Foundation, that the McAvoys um, were chronicle. Uh, oh, okay. The Chronicle newspaper and the Chronicle books and have had a long history of philanthropy, particularly in the arts. We have um, donors that have um, done really well in Silicon Valley. We have donors and all we have donors that are lawyers. We have donors that work in all sorts of different industries. Okay. The main thing that unites most of our donors, not all of them, but most of our donors are alums. So they are people who are deeply um Impacted. committed yeah, okay. but to UC Santa Cruz. And what we find is that people who are both deeply committed to UC Santa Cruz and also deeply committed to thinking about the importance of art, of the arts in education, in kind of um, community and all of that really are, have been incredibly supportive. Now, the there then, of course, there's other people that 
for instance, for the prison project, if there's people who are interested in prisons, right, or the intersections of art and prisons who maybe don't know Santa Cruz have become, have now are interested because this is a massive um, exhibition and a massive undertaking that really includes some of the most important people that are thinking about that issue today. How much of what you just described of this money management and this kind of talking to people, convincing and all, and pulling together a collection, how much of that is, um, the role of a curator? Yeah, no. (laughs) I mean, yes. So uh, this is a weird job that I have, right? So curators do that, right? Curators definitely, it's, there's, um, the mystique of curators is that somehow you're just meeting with artists and putting together exhibitions and that, you know, doing that kind of research, which is part of it. Right. But you're also are a kind of public interface. So you have to both gauge the public of what public is interested in for exhibitions. You have to teach the public what they should or could be interested in for exhibitions, but you also do have to do outreach uh, to do, you have to do donor outreach and be comfortable doing that. It's one of those things that you don't um, realize, I think, sometimes when you go into the field that that is part of it. But the funny thing is, is actually when you're passionate about your project, it's not hard, right? So if you're working with artists that you think are incredibly interesting, if you're doing projects that you think are really incredibly interesting, when you talk to people, that really comes across. And you're not making a sales pitch. I think that that's the deal with curators. You're not making a sales pitch. You're just telling people about something that you think is very important. So you have to be a fan of the artists you're representing. Well, I think that if, why would you put down together an exhibition that you didn't like? <laughs> so you see what I mean? Yeah. Like there's never been, nobody's ever asked me to do an exhibition on, um, that I to- wasn't interested in. Could so. you imagine an exhibition you wouldn't be interested in? Can I imagine doing an exhibition? No. Can I? Can you imagine an exhibition that you wouldn't be interested in? I mean, yes. that are you just interested in everything? Oh no, of course okay. not. Yes, okay. no. We all have our specialty. I mean, there are our points of interest, and my well, points of interest because I'm on a university campus too. I think that there's a very specific kinds of curatorial projects that lend themselves to university campuses, and I also think that there's projects that aren't as relevant mm-hmm. for university yeah, campuses. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Why are you interested in addressing? the issues around the uh, prison industrial system, the, you know, why, why is that something interesting to you? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I guess. And, and race inequality, right. I mean, which is hand in hand in the space, right? So I, can, can I go back just one more yeah. moment to talking about the um, kind of curator? Cause I do think that this is, is interesting for people to know what this job the is, curator job. right? Yeah. The curator. And then my job is, but has, I was the curator at the Institute of the Arts yeah. and Sciences, and I'm now acting as interim director, which has put me into many different roles. So the, while curators do do outreach um, and uh, like donor outreach and all of that stuff, development, the, stuff, yeah. development, the director role puts you much more in that position. So I just want to make that right. clear, you're, right? That you're there doing is, another job too. That right? I'm doing another job. So. And then the grant writing, it just depends on what level of um, where you are. what your involvement in that is. The best thing I can say to students who are thinking about going into curatorial work, get experience doing all of that. (laughs) You know, figure it out because there's not anything that at some point you won't need to be versed in doing in all of this. And that that is part of it. It's not the glamorous part of it, but it is real. Is that an invite for internship locations you have at the Institute as well? 
They, I, so, will you take on and train people? So I have, you know, I have vast amounts of interns. It sometimes seems like I have um, graduate student intern, um, graduate student fellows. I have undergraduate interns. Undergraduates don't intend to be used in the grant writing stuff, right. but my graduate students definitely draft grants with me. Okay, right. They so do. there's opportunity there yes. from an educational perspective, yes. even about the curatorial and yeah. institute running and all of that. Yeah. Now, okay, so to return to the question of why am I interested in the particular subjects that I'm looking at, why am I interested particularly in prisons or all of this, I think that one of the other interesting things about contemporary art is that contemporary art is incredibly political. That something, while art has always been political, it now takes on a kind of charge of being one of the front lines in which politics is kind of sorted out, yeah. that all sorts of different issues show up in contemporary art. In 2005, when I was an undergraduate in university, I was actually going to University of New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit. And at that point, I would have never had thought I was going into the arts. I was going to in lit, you know, I was taking literature classes. I'm not even really sure what I thought that I was going to do. I was always interested in education. But when Hurricane Katrina hit, and many people, um, students now don't remember this, but it was a massive hurricane that um, left 80% of New Orleans underwater, that the government response to it was incredibly delayed. And that the people who um, were most impacted by the storm left, for instance, on their roof, um, you know, huddled on the rooftops as a city filled with water, who um, were herded into the Superdome, which is the football arena in New Orleans, and left there without, um, you know, bathrooms or running water for weeks, um, were poor black people, you know, were elderly. It was this, you know, it was a, it was a horror. You know, it was it was horrible. And it acted as a lens to see that. Yes. And very much that all of a sudden, all the things that had been kind of hidden in the United States about the ways in which income inequality was entangled with issues of race and uh, also, uh, yeah, all of this stuff suddenly was kept, uh, really called to the um, surface of the United States. In fact, instead of sending aid, the government sent the military Right. And, right. and actually declared for a moment martial law before they realized that that was illegal. So, so that was, I was in university. I was in my first year of university. Um, the university went away because it was, uh, the, it didn't, the school didn't reopen for two years. Oh. So I ended up elsewhere. I was one of the many students who ended up someplace else and all like colleges all over the United States opened their doors and gave us free tuition. And I was in Central Florida at a little liberal arts school going, where am I? And uh, began, was taking classes. And one of the things I found was that in literature, the kind of relationship to all this seemed really removed. But in contemporary art, all of a sudden, uh, you know, people were really responding to what was going on. And in fact, in New Orleans, contemporary artists gathered and started um, this massive art exhibition that took over the whole city. In places where there were not wasn't power and there still weren't street signs, mm -hmm. there's kind of massive art biennial was um, took place. So I was like, why? <laughs> why is contemporary art um, taking these positions? And what does contemporary art do in systems of great kind of social political upheaval? Yeah. I have to say that that just completely changed my life because after that, I just kept following that as a nugget. Right. What is it? The things that are the most uh, kind of trying things that are happening in the United, uh, United States, the most volatile situations, the situations that are the most charged around um, oppression, the places where people are being 
uh, really tortured and hurt in the United States and what are artists doing in response. Mm -hmm. So that um, was really formative to me. Then, you know, I, so fast forward, I finished under um, undergraduate school. I still don't know what I'm going to do, but I know that I'm like, Hmm, this thing with art and all this, I, uh, there's a new program at Santa Cruz and I apply there cause it had seemed to be very politically like, uh, politically real. I knew Angela Davis, the great prison abolitionist and revolutionary leader taught here and came to graduate school here, took classes with Angela Davis. And she was so lovely. She would be taught aesthetics because, uh, I was in the class and she knew that that's what I was doing. And sat there and we really talked about why art when you're thinking about social inequalities. I mean, it, it's like, it was like my path was laid out to me. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it was like, I didn't have a choice. I have to do this right yeah. work. Right. And that suddenly you see in Angela and Dr. Davis's teaching, you can see that prisons are one of the places that carry all the, the seeds of social inequality right. in the United States. Right. That they, they carry with them, as we've mentioned, the history of enslavement, that they um, are a way to divide people. They're also a way that serves to cloak the kind of social inequalities outside of prisons. The fact that poor people go to prisons right. way more than people with money, it has served as kind of a social stand in or a social cloak of ills. So to kind of let me say that, would you say that you're interested in art that explores injustice? Or inequalities? I mean, I think that I'm interested in art that uh, actually opens that up so that we understand something about the world. Okay. So if we go back to Shannon McCormick and Keith Calhoun's work, you hear you suddenly you see the ways in which um, the prisons both exist, but also the ways that they recede from sight, yeah. right? That they have do this kind of lovely work where they show the ways in which we cannot focus on these issues. So what I'm really interested in is looking at artists for both to see how they kind of unpack how we understand the world, right? That there's a way that we can understand how we see the world mm -hmm. and how we could see the world differently that I think is incredibly interesting. Some art that I, you know, I love art that's not overtly political too. It's just that what I always like is the ways in which art asks us to think about how we see and apprehend the world. Not and I'm not being just vision centric. Right. When I say see, I think it's the I, what I'm really saying is how we understand and kind of encounter the worlds around yeah. us. Okay, let's talk about um, Barring Freedom, the show mm -hmm. that will be um, going up in April, I believe, in New York, mm -hmm. um, and then come to to California as well. Who who are the artists? Let's just talk about a couple of them as examples of work and why and how their work affects you or how you hope that it will affect the people that will see it. Yeah. I mean, there's amazing work in that show. Someone there's a told, lot of people in the show. Yeah. Someone told me that I wasn't supposed to say that it was amazing, but I'm like, yeah, these are artists are amazing. How can I not talk about it like that? But I mean, I'm working one of the things that, um, one of the works that opens the show. I mean, there's so much work I could talk about, but the work by Sanford Biggers, Sanford Biggers is a U.S. artist that, um, I've been interested in a really long time. And he in does fact, the introduction chapter of your book highlights his work. Yes. Yeah. So he, one of the things that, you know, that he's done is that looking at kind of police violence and the police shooting of people in the United States, 
that he's done this project called BAM in which he takes statues that he finds at thrift stores and tourist shops that are like statues that we would call African for, you know, like um, kind of tourist African statuary. When, when I was looking at your chapter in your book and reading that, at first I thought they were very small. And then I started getting, oh, they must be much bigger than I think. How big are they? Some of them are tiny. Okay. So the, um, they range from five inches to then really tall, like seven foot tall okay, so sculptures. It depends, sizes. right? So they're found objects he finds that are representational, if you will, in some way of black people in America. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, I think that it's not, of, uh, it's actually of blackness, right? So oh, the things the that difference? are, well, I would say that. Um, the ideas of kind of blackness because they're thing they're like African sculptures so that they carry, but they're not actually African sculptures. So those like tourist sculptures that are made to seem like they would be from the, Africa. from the African continent. Oh. Um, and so that what they are is they carry that idea of what Africa is. Of course, Africa is a continent with 54 countries, right? right. That all of these things. And yet it is um, when we, the reason why people so often call it a country is that it is bound together by kind of a singular idea of what Africa is that is from wrapped here. up from here, yeah. right? That is wrapped up with some sort of ideas about race and some, you know, about people's bodies and, you know, all of that, that then becomes inscribed in people's minds. If you say African statuary, an image comes up in somebody's sure. mind, right? But what exactly are we picturing? Are we picturing something from Mali? Are we picturing something from Egypt? Are we picturing something from South Africa? You know, or nobody can... picturing like a Disneyfication of it that's just like a thing that you could kind of say, well, it must have roots from Africa, but I can't tell what it's yes. plastic as well. What, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So that, that he's playing with that because of course what the, and, and suggesting somehow that what it is that binds that together has been a notion of, of blackness, okay. right. Um, of kind of a racialization thing. So okay, he so takes he's finding these, these pieces and these are different sizes and also different materials. Yes. Okay. And what he does then is he dips them in brown wax. So he coats them in a thick layer of this brown wax so that whatever they, um, whatever their, uh, you know, aesthetic, aesthetic style. Yes. Yeah. Whatever their characteristics are becomes now subsumed in color. So he's putting this veneer of color over them. Which removes detail as well. Yes. So, and then he um, has, he works with somebody who then shoots the figurines, right? So when you're talking about the six foot, um, the original one, I think was Bam for Michael with Michael Brown, that there sh it's shot repeatedly. And then he shows a video of it, both being shot and then coming back together in kind of this loop. So he films it in high speed film. Mm -hmm. And then, and you're saying there's multiple sculptures that represent Michael Brown? No, this, just, just one just one, this okay. is one piece that he's done. And then he d takes the, what's left of the sculpture after it's been shot and he casts it in, in bronze, making it now a precious object. Making it now a museum piece. A museum will, piece, a traditional. right. Exactly. That he shows on a plinth. And then he also ha shows the video recording of it being shot, um, coming apart and then reforming in a kind of loop. So thinking so, it, about I, I, the relationship, I think, with color, violence. And then also, I think, though, the nice thing about Sanford Biggers is that there's something about the putting it, the pieces back together that's really important to him.
Interesting. Does he, does he, um, if the pieces shatter completely, he does put them together before he produces the bronze? Because the bronze is a lost fort. I'm assuming the original piece gets destroyed in the it's bronze. It's not inner. completely oh, destroyed, right? So there's sh- a shot and you can watch their, like the arms fly off there. It's really, really hard to watch. Is the bronze not have those arms? They do not. Yes. Okay. So, so that they it show. is the re- remnants, if you will, yes. after the shooting. Okay. Yes. Um, you know what? A few I, different things I want to, yeah. yeah, what were you going to like, say? I'm like, there are better works that I could describe for this that are more straightforward, but go ahead. But that's, that's fine. Um, yeah. uh, first off, you, you do talk about this in the chapter of your book, so I read a bit about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to say that as we discuss this, one of the things I was doing when I was reading your, your chapter of your book that's you're working on, it's not released yet, um, is that your writing is very, uh, it's poetic. It's really horribly beautiful in the sense that your topic points, you talk about Michael Brown, who is actually a victim of police homicide. Um, and the, the, you might remember this in the news. He, his body laid in the sun for four hours while the investigation was happening. And the writing that you have is really beautiful. I see why you wanted to be a major in literature. Um, so I don't feel like we're doing justice to what you do in telling that story by having a kind of like conversation about it. Um, but so I just wanted to kind of set that stage that, um, about what happened to Michael Brown. Do you want to talk a little bit more about it? Yes. I mean, he was, you know, um, approached by a police officer um, and uh, was shot in Ferguson. And this was the, really the kicked off many of the protests in the Black Lives Matter movement, that this was a, a defining point, right? That while he had been accused, uh, perhaps of, you know, there was one of these really complicated, like, why was he approached by the police? That perhaps he had stolen something from a store, that people talked about it in all these ways. But ultimately what happened was, is that police approached him, that he uh really was even backing away from the police. And for some reason in that moment, that heightened moment of tension, he was shot repeatedly. Right. And that, that the treatment of him after he died was that they then left him in the, in the street for hours and hours and hours while his mother begged for them to cut, you know, to not do that. And the whole neighborhood gathered around in horror as they conducted an investigation of sorts into it. What happens in those hours, of course, is that not only does the neighborhood begin to watch, but of course, the whole country begins to watch. And that after that, people begin to go and lay down in the street. Adept to represent this. um, So it it starts a movement in some ways. Um, But also you talk about like the media spotlight, the social media spotlight, Mm -hmm. and then the, the mass media, if you will, spotlight on this allows us to start having a dialogue of something that was as just like uh, Aurora uh, Angora is completely transparently there for all us to see, it actually gave us a moment to actually look at it and see it. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that 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 heightened moment of visibility leads to mass protests, right? We're still living in that moment where these continued mass protests of thinking about what it is that people can be walking down the street one moment, be shot by police another moment for no good reason. And then they're, you know, the police officers largely are never prosecuted for these things. I mean, 1% or something. And even though an investigation happened of the entire system and showed, yes, Mm -hmm. there's racism in the police force here. Nothing's really changed. Right. So what happens after that, this really heightened uh, attention to Michael Brown causes the Justice Department in the United States to actually do an investigation into the Ferguson police force. What they find is they find that there's racial discrimination at every aspect in the who gets pulled over when they're driving, who gets tickets, who what sentence people give and get 
in the um, in the court systems. So what oh, the same sentences, type of crime right? Versus, yeah. Right. So they find it in every instance. They find racial discrepancies in how people are treated by the criminal justice system. And this is what the report says. Yes, I mean, I, and it, I mean it is a huge. You can go look at it right now. It's on the criminal on the um, Justice Department website. It is a massive disturbing look at what the United States and the criminal justice system in the prison industrial complex and nothing happened that there, um, we have all the evidence now there was that kind of the four hours that his body sent lying in the street led to this massive investigation made totally clear that the criminal justice system in the United States is completely um, racialized and racist. And yet it continues to function just as it did. And in fact, people just quickly looked away so one of the things that I'm interested in was thinking about, okay, how quickly we closed our eyes from that as a country. Mm-hmm. And I'm not everybody, right? I would say, I'm always very careful. I'm like, not everybody closed their eyes, but the country closed its eyes, right? And then um, what the artists do to try to force eyes back open at this. So, you know, using thinking with artists like Sanford Biggers, thinking with artists like Deanna Lawson, um, Hank Willis Thomas, Dred Scott, Sonia Clark, uh, Jackie Summel, look, bringing all these artists together who, who for years tried to find ways to concentrate kind of attention on this, give us different access to it. And I think in many ways, force people not to look away mm-hmm. at the things that we are living amongst because we're part of these systems. Is Bigger's piece, well, why is Bigger's piece uh, so, like t- talk about what it feels like to experience his piece, this this slow motion and, and replay of this ex- very violent thing, this sculpture that's very uh, fitting for a museum in, the, in its uh, materialistically quality. What does it feel like to be in that piece? I mean, it's very visceral. It's a, it materializes the violence, and then it it um, memorializes it or monumentalizes it. Monumental. I mean, the small pieces I think too become are monuments to police violence, but and monuments to uh, racial racial oppression. They're also, though, they still carry with them. I mean, one of the things that reason why African statuary, I think, captures the mind and why, of course, it's very important in cultures in different countries in Africa is it also has a spiritual, you know, life, right? So that the materiality that they're, that's being captured by these sculptures are not just about violence, but they're also um, carry with them a kind of reverence, I think, too, right? That we're looking at statues, that we're looking at bronzes, that we're looking at something that we're supposed to contemplate. And and so it's also a very um, respectful way, I mm. think, of looking at violence. It's a body ma- um, made contemplatable, you know, violence materialized, and also, uh, but with the people themselves still being revered in some ways and mm. memorialized and monumentalized. Um, they're lovely and incredibly moving works. I think one of the things about the exhibition is the exhibition is really power, features some really powerful works, really emotional works, but it also does have the sense that we are not just talking about victims. We're talking about people who are actively engaging in fighting systems and creating systems and working against these things, right? That this is not just about counting the dead. This is about um, summoning the living. Mm. How, so you, you, you already said that you find it important for you to be interested 
and for you to engage. And I'm assuming that's not just intellectual, that's also um, the, the other effects that you have when you see a piece that's important to you. How, how is it to have both, to be in that space where you're like a raw human being experiencing this kind of overwhelming strength of a good piece that talks about your political environment, talks about society and reflects who you are, and also the intellectual and then also the financial. How do you play in all those fields? Um, do you have to train yourself to think a certain way at a certain time? What do you? I'm, you know, it's, it's not always easy to put on all the different roles. I mean, the fun or the it's fun's the wrong word, but I would say the work that feels the most vital and fulfilling is being able to come up with the kind of ideas and thinking about how put things in relationship to each other in the exhibitions but the, you have to, but then to change the hats of like doing the different parts of the job to think about funding, to do all that stuff, you know, can be, uh, you know, you have to move pretty nimbly between kind mm -hmm. of different modalities of thinking and uh, being in the world. But I think that, you know, what I've tried to do is to have big, ambitious ideas and yet also garner the skills that it needs to get things done which is sometimes kind of an unusual approach, right? So here we have the um, the biggest possible, you know, thing that we can imagine doing. What does it take to get there, yeah. right? So you just start the very basic, what does it take to get there? And what I found in this, one of the things that it always takes to get there is if you just get the one response back, right? So, you know, if I started with faculty that they, okay, here, I've got faculty that are involved. Now I'm talking to artists, what artists are going to be involved? And then you just build from there, right? Because all once you get enough kind of people and things on your side and you begin to lay this out this way, all the other pieces can fall into line. I also work with great people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I'm like, you know, I've got team right now that's doing, I mean, everything, you, exhibitions are super hard to do there. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> everything from like getting things shipped from across the country to getting things installed, to thinking about the tech needs of video installations and sound pieces. So, you know, you have to really also figure out who are the people that you can use and are going to help you get these things done. How is the gallery and supporting you in New York? What's that, what that, what's that relationship been like? Yeah, that's great. I mean, the gallery in New York is a really interesting gallery. It's a um, John Jay College of Criminal Justice is a really interesting college. And I, the minute I thought of this exhibition, I immediately wanted to do it there because John Jay is a college that is training people to be in the criminal justice system. So it trains police officers. It um, is the first stop for people who are going to become, will go on to be lawyers, to be working wow. in you know prison guards. It's like every, you know, this is the training institution for people within the criminal justice system. And, and they have a gallery space? They have an amazing space. gallery space. It's actually in a totally amazing school. It's one of those schools that's like in the one of the top, you know, five schools in the United States for the students come in are very poor and economically depressed, come, come out into jobs that are, you know, middle-class jobs and middle-class lives. It's, um, uh, the students are incredibly interesting and engaged, you know, from Queens and the Bronx and all of that. They come to Manhattan to do this training programs and to take, get this education. And the professors there are phenomenal. They're so, amazing, um, taking this moment to really think with their students about what the world is and the roles we play in it so that they've had a mission to think about arts and relationships from that. 
really for a long time. The mm -hmm. last president of the university really doubled down on that and expanded their gallery space. They do amazing exhibitions. It's in Midtown Manhattan, the galleries on the street, you know, street right. level gallery. And Available to a lot of people. Yes, and the, but they do programming that really thinks with their students. So they just had an exhibition called Citizen, thinking about the issues of citizenship through contemporary art. So the minute I thought of this exhibition, I was like, I want to do it at John Jay because that's the, the those are the students that I think of as, Perfect, yeah. right? The kind of matching students to our students. Our students are different than that and yet have great similarities that they're um, going in and learning things about the world and they're going to play roles in this as well. I, I find it really interesting that you have people that are um, kind of a poor going to this college to get trained to be a middle-class role of a prison guard in a system that we're kind of... Your work is, you know, aiming a focus beam on how unjust and bad this is. So it's strange that that's a path that you, you know, it seems like an odd way, a place for focus to be. Right. And I mean, I would say, yeah, I don't think so. I think that the trick is, is that, of course, that there, this is a system that exists. And then we talk to the people within the system. We're all people. Yeah. <laughs> so they're people too. These are not bad people. I mean, not, police no. officers are not bad people. Right. They're, we're all just people. And we need to be allies in this struggle, right? That the um, to take down these systems requires the systems themselves to realize that there's something wrong. And people do. I mean, everybody knows that there's, some, that there's something wrong with the way that we uh, treat each other within these systems. Sure. So that the conversations that are being had between the people that are in fact going to be in the systems are the most vital conversations yeah. at all. They care the most, right? right? right. It's the their rest, life. you know, yeah. other people can go home to their houses and not think about this as in fact their lives. Yeah. But here are the people that really do. And I think that for me is insisting, one of the things that's interesting about starting there is saying that our students are in relationship to this too, yeah. so that our students see themselves also as part of the complex, a yes, part of the prison complex. Exactly. Yeah. So that, but the relationship with the gallery is really interesting because pretty much what I do is, you know, it's our exhibition. It's, but they do all the installation. They receive the shipping. Yes. yes. They get everything up. They build the stuff to do the art. It's a um, fantastic, they're wonderful, fantastically um, eager and helpful and Lovely, and this is how they do exhibitions. Actually, is they make do um, exhibitions they with other, they yeah. host other people's exhibitions. So let me talk about the actual staging in that environment. Mm -hmm. That you've been to that gallery, obviously mm -hmm. you've seen it. You've figured out where pieces are going to be and what counts can be in there and stuff. And then you also have to you're taking the same pieces. You're doing it again at two other locations. You're splitting them up, and you're doing says on one in San Jose. What what effect do seeing one? So just from that, the same pieces in the same show. But the layout of it and the flow of the of the people will be different in these two environments. If I go to the one in New York versus the one the two here to see the same pieces, what difference will it be for an effect of an audience member? How how will it impact me differently in these two places? That's a great question. I mean, I think that the spaces are incredibly different, so that there's um, that each exhibition is going to be incredibly different. The difference of the, for instance, just of the layout, there's windows in the John Jay location. There's, um, you know, other things. The San Jose Museum of Art is very, one of those like spectacular architectures with the soaring ceilings and the, um, you know, has much more of that kind of chapel feel or something that you're like, mm -hmm. um, where John Jay, it's a much more uh, like 
like lower ceilings, much more kind of intimate space, even though it's not small. So I think that the, um, that the shows become vastly different because of the architecture of the spaces, but then all, then to respond as a curator, to respond to the architecture of, architecture of the spaces, they, the thing, the works need very different things, right? Like what? So, I mean, I would say that, um, that John Jay, you know, we have to make little, it's a much more intimate space. So we're thinking about these like intimate groupings of, um, you know, right. That you have these areas where, you know, you're really going to get people to be drawn in. They're going to be very close. They're going to feel differently about the works and their physical proximity to the book works where San Jose, there's this kind of, because you're in this kind of more grand space, there's a sense of remove. Mm. So how do we get that sense of intimacy? How do you pull that back that? in? Uh-huh. While also, I think, maintaining some of the pleasures of that kind of spacious environment. Right, because right? it does feel good to be in a space like that. Right, it has a different, a different it has a different kind of contemplative uh, let's, <laughs> right, let's, effect. Let's talk about Bang, um, of, of um, Bigger's piece. Bang. Bam. Bam, sorry, mm-hmm. Bam, not Bang. Bam. Um, Bam is these sculptures that ha- that are going to be on pedestals. I'm assuming kind of an eye height, depending on the size, so mm-hmm. that it's in a comfortable relation to the person that walks up to them. Um, but they also have to have this screen, this projection. So in one environment, you could do a very large projection. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming the artist is kind of the, the the it's not he doesn't design the actual presentation of the video, right? Actually, they are. He does, oh, he does. in this oh, case. Okay. So we're showing actually, and we're not showing um, Bam for Michael in that piece. We're showing um, Bam for Tamir. Which is um, Tamir Rice, of course, was the um, 12-year-old child who was killed. In seven seconds or something really yes. short like that. Yes, and um, so that one actually doesn't have a video because the I would say that when Tamir Rice was shot in the pavilion of the park, it was recorded. You can watch it right now. Right. And, um, Not that that's the video in the piece. No, so that uh, re- doing any sort of video about his death did not seem appropriate to Sanford. So what he has is a statue that memorializes the death without a video. And we're also showing a work that's a six foot high sculpture that's called Seated Warrior, which is amazing and beautiful and very contemplative. And then we're showing a work that's a compilation of videos of different sculptures um, that I've you know, are shot and reformed called infinite tabernacle without the, without bronze associated with them. Right. Okay. So you actually, you do see seated warrior in there, but they're not direct ties. So what they've and done the artist is, is very involved in how those pieces will present. Yes. Okay. But, um, so that those are very, um, formal, I would say pieces. Uh-huh. So at, um, San Jose, they're actually really easy to show, right. Where in a space like, um, John Jay, right? That it, they're more of a challenge to show in the um, to find ways. It will be seated warrior. They need those, more room, or they need more room. They need the space of contemplation. So we're putting actually um, seated warrior will be the first work you one of the first works you see when you go into John Jay. The other thing, I and mean, we're also showing we're showing a reproduction of a solitary cell. In both oh, places, okay. the wooden. So yes, yeah. it's the um, a six by nine solitary cell that um, uh, is an artist project by Jackie Summel, who worked with Herman Wallace, who was one of incarcerated. the who was incarcerated at Angola, uh-huh. and um, for forty one years spent in solitary confinement. And it's a cell that's been um, that has been built according to drawings he did of his solitary cell. Oh, interesting. And alongside so he, that, he was in dialogue with the artist, wrote drawings, and described the room and all that. And then she went ahead and made 
a reproduction of what he's living in yes. and brought it into an environment where we can see it. Yes. So you can actually go into the um, cell, into the cell and experience what it is to stand in a six by nine box that somebody spent 41 years of their life in. It's a very moving um, and powerful work. That work also is shown. One of the, the actual project was that she worked with Herman Wallace and she asked him if he wa was to have a house, you know, if he wasn't in solitary confinement, what would be the house that he would build? And he wrote to her with letters, not only describing the cell that he was in, but also the house that he would live in if he was not in that cell. And so there's a model of the cell of the house, I'm sorry, the house that um, he um, came up with and drawings of the house that he came up with too that are shown next to the cell. So it's a very strong... Right, there's flowers in it and a lot of glass in the house that he'd wanted. Yeah. So one of the first things he described when he described the house was the gardens. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, um, yes. And there's a swimming pool with a black panther on the bottom of it. It's really amazing. It's a great, so there's a lot, I think lots of different ways that you can experience it. And that work is interesting because it's, um, I think Sanford Bigger's work is very somber and contemplative and this work is too, but there's also something joyous about Herman's house yeah. that, uh, he yeah, could about hope and vision. And, yes. Yeah. And that there was an outside to this, um, situation. Yeah. So that also is a work that's, you know, very going to be very different depending on where you see it. I you, think the whole thing, that, you said that you, it's a reproduction of the cell mm -hmm. is a reproduction of the house as well. So, and when you say reproduction, I mean, maybe it's the wrong word. What, what does that mean exactly? So the cell, like I said, the cell has um, been built out of wood with, with a um, with the gate that from his drawings. So it's not but from the artist. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The artist has made the artist a has made a cell from Herman's. So maybe reproduction doesn't work. It's she's made a cell. Art. Yeah. Yes. She's made a cell from the drawings of Herman Wallace, and then she's made a model of the house that Herman. Um, that Herman also drew in his pictures so that you can see the house in three dimensions. There is a um, attempt to also build that house, but in New Orleans, Herman Wallace was released from, pr from prison after spending four 41 years in solitary wow. confinement and died three days later. No. So it slowed down. Uh, yes. He had uh, advanced cancer, which is why he was released and he was um, in exonerated of his charges. He but, was exonerated. Mm -hmm. All yes. So the, um, but so that slowed down the building of the house to some degree. Yeah. It's yeah. a, it's a really, you know, all these stories are hard stories, but they're also stories of, like I said, of fight and struggle and of a gathering of people against the system. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that he passed away three days later. It's, it's odd how, um, how additionally impactful it is, like almost more so than if he'd passed away in prison. And it seems kind of, Strange, but um, sorry. But he thought, I mean, I think that the Jackie who uh, communicated with Herman by letters for 12 years and was with Herman when he passed says that we have to take it as a victory. I guess this is what I was talking about, about being impacted by this art and this being your life and also your, you know, the work you do. I mean, work in the sense of like paperwork <laughs> <laughs> and also this very, um, very moving pieces. It's, it's hard. You, you live in this all the time. Yeah. I mean, the, we haven't even talked about Solitary Garden, which is Jackie's uh, other work that's on campus. Speaking of living in all the I time. I guess the humor helps, right? Yes. That. Yes. Okay. Well, and I mean, I think that, um, you know, that there's a sense that, that this, that there's a, that 
and I keep trying to figure out ways to say this in this conversation, but that there's a kind of pessimism that can arise from being surrounded or really um, by some of these artworks and some of these themes and really delving deep into them. But there's a kind of optimism you have to hold on to, too, and that all the works, I think, are this um, interesting mix between what Gramsci would say, you know, or Gramsci supposedly said was the pessimism of the um, intellect and optimism of the will. That, Ooh, nice. Yes. So that, you know, we can understand that the world is this place in which all th these bad things are happening. And yet we have to continue to believe something different. How do you stage the pieces so that you make sure that you bring that up for people? So when they leave, I'm assuming you want people to leave feeling like they can do and act and be engaged. Right. I mean, I think that that's the trick, right? So they're trying to put together a story and a narrative that keeps that optimism going. And I think that all of the works actually do do that. By I themselves also, even. Yes. Yeah. And I think that bringing them all together, I mean, one of the things that I think is the most moving is how many people in this country are day in, day out, struggling against the system, these mm -hmm. systems, right? And that you see that in the artists, like how painstakingly people are working on this problem, you know, it's more than just a problem. <laughs> that and, that, seems and that's like optimistic too small itself in the sense that there's so much engagement. Yeah. There's something that is so optimistic about bringing everybody together. That's why I'm so excited too, that we're doing this big symposium. When we bring the exhibition to San, to Santa Cruz and to San Jose, we're doing this big symposium where Angela Davis is going to keynote and we have all these scholars and artists and people coming together to really, to build on that, right? When we are all together, we are strong. So that how can we begin to, um, you know, carry that optimism, not take the pessimism, but say, okay, this is what the situations we're living in. These are the things. And here we are, there's a lot of us and we are, you know, we care a great deal about this. So it does not have to stay, you know, it does not have to be this way. Yeah. Right. And it's not that I think we're going to go and necessarily, um, Change legislation immediately or anything? Change legislation right. immediately. But I do think that, the, you know, we're all chipping away at the same structure and that things are changing very quickly. So we are part of a larger systems that are also working for change. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rachel, for coming out here and talking about this work. I'm looking forward to the show. I kind of want to travel and see it in New York, too, just you because it's so interesting to see mm -hmm. it, the two different spaces. Um, but let me, add, let me let you close a bit with... What, um, what are you, as you're moving forward, this it's, and it's, the momentum is happening, you're getting all these works and stuff. What are you, um, what are you working on after that show? Like, what's that next one? And I know that's a weird time to ask because it hasn't even launched, but part of this is that you have to keep doing that as well. Right. Yeah. That's the, I mean, it's one of the things is you have to have like seven pokers in the fire all the time and you have to keep up with them. So one of the things that I'm working on is actually an exhibition about, um, well, we, there's an exhibition open right now at the Cezanne gallery that I've curated called um, Carlos Moto, We the Enemy, that looks at really the histories that lead to the immigration policies we have today in the United States and elsewhere. Can particularly, you tell the window when it closes? This podcast might yeah, come out later. So It closes on um, March 14th, 2020. And that exhibition really looks at um, on immigration policies, particularly about around how sexuality and gender identity is inflected within immigration policies. So particularly how people, um, LGBTQIA plus people um, fit into this uh, situation, the, uh, fit into immigration politics. 
with that, I, we did, I did a symposium two weeks ago, both at um, Santa Cruz and at SFMOMA, where we brought together scholars and different thinkers um, to, uh, to think about border politics, particularly as they inflect issues of sexual, sexual identities and gender identities. That was super, super interesting. Then after this, I'm, so then I'm working on Barring Freedom, and then I'm working on an exhibition, another exhibition that really deals with um, migration and immigration. I mean, it's such a big topic right now in the United States, and there's so many, so much interesting work being done on it, mm -hmm. particularly in the Mediterranean. Um, we're looking at immigration in the Mediterranean and what's going on between North Africa, the Middle East, and Europe um, with an artist named Bushra Khalili in partnership with the McAvoy Family Foundation in um, San Francisco. So that will be an exhibition again that's in two places. I'm always looking for exhibitions or w ways to do exhibitions that are bigger in scope than what we can fit at the Cessnon while also really using the Cessnon and making sure that we have amazing exhibitions of art on campus. And, and showing, yeah, showing what we can do on campus yes. and also show it in a space that's like visionary of what we'd want also on campus. Exactly. Well. Yeah. This, the aspiration of campus. And another thing that, you know, I really do is that for all of this, I, um, actually even the Carlos Mota show that he's got work also up at SFMOMA. Mm -hmm. So I partnered, that's why I partnered with them was that, so we could do an exhibition that we could have on campus that would be expanded in San Francisco. Yeah. And then we could do the symposium together and we take students from campus to the exhibitions in the Bay area and we'll take them to San Jose. Oh, we great. do all that as well. Okay. We take busloads of students. So we try to keep, you know, this, um, we keep both an ambitious exhibition program and ambitious is the word, right? So that also holds a space for in the near future, being able to have all those exhibitions on campus. All right. Well, go ahead and make your pitch for the listener that happens to have funds that they could spare. What are you looking for to be able to do with good funding right now? And what level produces a space that's more permanent um, on campus? So you're asking what level of funding? Yeah. What, what's important at this point? I mean, I think that, you know, that we've looked at things at different scales from like a full um, museum with a cafe that would on campus would cost between 55 and 65 million dollars. What I think we really need on campus, and that would be a 25,000 square foot building, you know, okay. museum to what. But what I think we really need on campus is like a 4,000 square foot, beautiful gallery. If you've been to the Red Cat in L.A., that's a 3,000 square foot art gallery, um, which to me would be perfect for this campus. We could do amazing exhibitions of art. We could um, service the MFA programs. So we'd be able to work with the, the MFA digital art and new media students and the new um, MFA that's coming online with um, environmental art and social practice to do exhibitions of their work, which right now there's not enough space on campus to do. Plus we could bring national and internationally significant work um, uh, exhibitions to campus, the kind of things I'm doing elsewhere. That would give us a, a, a gallery space that I think is at the right scale for our campus uh -huh. and also keeps in a kind of, I think the financial scale, I actually think as a public university that right now spending 55 million to $65 million on a museum isn't, uh, isn't necessarily what we need. What we need is something that's of the scale that the university can support, that can support our students, that does not take away from other things that our students need. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So you feel like the balance is, is, is more important at this point? I actually think that what we've found is because we started out thinking we were the, you know, thinking this big museum, 
and I think that the um, campus itself is grow it is um, has told us what it wants <laughs> in some ways, <laughs> okay. right? We've it's found its own scale, and yeah. you know, over the last five years of doing programming with the Institute of the Arts and Sciences and seeing what the campus responds to and what it wants. So the, the other example, Red Cat is a good example. The San Jose um, ICA is a good example of a space where you could do two real shows or one amazing show. And, you know, you have the kind of space and uh, climate control that we could borrow from the other UCs. All the UC, all the art that's owned by the UCs or the UCs art collections. Mm -hmm. So everything that the Hammer has, everything that... Um, you know, UC Davis, we can borrow all of that as long as we have the facilities and climate control facilities to take care of it. So this is the scale that we're looking at. Um, we're looking at and put it at hopefully thinking with the structures that are already on campus and how we can kind of annex off of those so that we can not, you know, that we're still within the kind we're of fitting the community. We're fitting there. the yeah. community. We're really trying to build something that reflects what's already there or maybe build on, right? We're not bringing in a new, this is not a new project for 20 years. People have been talking about this on campus. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like we're really close now to getting to the point where we understand what the campus needs and how we can do it. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we'll have more news on that in a few months. Yeah. Okay. And so what kind of funding right now, of course, you'd say yes to anything. If people feel compelled to uh, help participate in this kind of work, you'd accept any kind of donation, of course. Of course. But are you looking for like a naming situation as well? Would that be very beneficial to get the kind of funds? And what kind of level is that? Of course. So, and I mean, I think that we're right. We're almost too soon for me to say this. Yeah, okay. So what is going on right now is that um, Chancellor Reeve has been... Um, is new on campus, is incredibly interested in this, but needs a little bit more of the backstory. And so we're getting together right now. I'm on a, com um, I have a kind of a working group with um, physical planning on campus and capital space. Shifting from planning. this 25,000 square foot idea yes. to this 4,000. And showing okay. that, showing her both that history and then where we are right now. Right. And then, um, but so the reason why I don't want to say, right, exactly You're a number and things like that like. Yeah. is I really, this is something that's not just, I can tell you exactly what I want, but what I'm really interested in being able to do instead of that is to tell you what the campus wants. Right. And for the first time in years, we are almost to the point where we know what we want. That's great. And That's so great. I'm super excited about being able to talk about that. I would say if anybody wants to talk to me about that now or at any point, I'd love to talk to them about it. I'd love to talk to them about what we think it's going to take to get a, um, a, a real gallery on campus. And I think that it's actually something that is completely at the right scale for the campus. We're not talking about $55 million. Right. So. So go to ias.ucsc.edu and you can find out more about your staff and what you're doing and such. Why, here's another piece I want to ask you that's kind of, I don't know if it's important to the audience or not, but I'm curious. Why are you intern? Why aren't you have this job? What's that look? What's the going on there? Are you hiring a, a full-time position for you? So that's, um, so when the founding director left in the summer, they approached me and asked if I would um, step into the interim director role. One of the things that we've talked about, and, you know, I work really closely with the arts dean's office and the central administration is what is the position that's needed there right now, because we're a nomadic exhibition program, making partnerships with other institutions and galleries in order to do programming, what this role looks like is 
one what thing. you've been describing. Right. Yeah. If it, in fact, we have a building coming up online and we're doing a capital um, project and all of the different things that comes with the the role is something different. So what we are actually doing it right now is in the middle of um, kind of plotting out what this job is and to revisit it in the spring. And then we'll begin to prop, um, the plan is to do an open search for the position in the spring. Um, but we first need to decide exactly what the position is. And if the position is something that you like, will you apply for that? I mean, that's one of the things I am definitely very, very committed to the arts at Santa Cruz. I was really funny. I would have thought, and there was a point that I thought that I would leave. I had another job and all of that, and then was sucked back in <laughs> with the and by the administration here um, because I think that I I feel a little stubborn, like that I feel like that the university really does need a substantial gallery and it really does need the visual arts and that the IAS has transformed the university. We have. Um, amazing artists coming to campus all the time now. We have events, we have exhibitions. It's so different than it was. And I don't want it to see it disappear. So what I think of this as my job right now is to figure out how to make it lasting. Now, whether I'm the leader of that or not, um, that remains to be seen. But I turns out that I stubbornly care really about care. The, yeah about having something um, having this not just vanish on campus but to make a sustained and lasting place for the visual arts. Rachel Nelson, thank you for joining me on the Art of Change. Thank you so much for having me. The Art of Change is a production of the Arts Division of UC Santa Cruz. Engineering, editing, and theme song by Eric Mack. Research and production assistant Maggie Hoogs. This podcast is hosted and produced by Lyle Troxell, a maker, podcaster, and software engineer working for Netflix. To learn more about the Arts Division at UC Santa Cruz, visit arts.ucsc.edu and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.